Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25, we'll start in verse 35. Hear now the word of the Lord. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly." If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and, price, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired servant. If there are many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption some of his sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a servant hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. As, as Christians, we, we talk a lot about redemption. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But where does this language of redemption come from? Uh, actually, bef- before this passage here, there have been three uses of this word to redeem. Uh, there was one back in Genesis 48 in the blessing of Jacob. And then there are two references in Exodus 6 and 15 to how God redeemed Israel from Egypt. But really, Leviticus 25 is where we learn this idea of redemption. Now, there's a different Hebrew word for ransom, uh, which oftentimes gets translated redeem as well. But this particular concept that here is here in chapter 25 of Leviticus, to redeem here is ga'al, it expresses not just a financial transaction, but also a personal relation. Redemption, ge'ulah, is properly done by a kinsman 
one who stands in close relation to you. Uh, we still use the language of redeeming in our culture. Uh, if, you have a, if you have a gift card or a coupon, you can redeem it. Uh, which, in one sense, that's, there's no particular personal relation that's, really, that's left in the modern concept of redemption. But, the, but this idea of redeeming, and in fact, investors use the word redemption in various ways. So it's worth remembering that the word redemption in American English is not just used theologically and soteriologically about our salvation, that in fact redemption is actually a, as much a financial and um, sort of economic term as it is a, a we talk, we talk about if you have bottles, you know, bottles and cans, uh, they have a redemption value. Uh, you, the, the, the sort of the store will buy them back. Uh, now, the most famous instance of redemption in the scriptures uh, prior to our Lord Jesus, of course, is that of Boaz redeeming Ruth, or more properly Naomi and the land uh, that was Elimelech's inheritance. So redemption is done properly by a kinsman, one who stands in close relation to you. And that's, now, like I said, there's a different word for ransom, which also can be translated redeem, and that's, we're not, we're not considering that. But here, this is talking about the ga'al, the one who redeems, uh, and what is, what is redemption? Uh, redemption is both an economic activity and a personal activity. We saw actually this morning in Psalm 19, I, I didn't point this out, but when it says the Lord is my rock and my redeemer, it's the same word, Gaal, in this case. It's the Lord is my redeemer. And with respect to our eternal salvation, it is entirely true to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only redeemer of God's elect. But just as Leviticus 25 speaks of redemption in economic and very, very sort of earthly ways, so also today we should not be afraid to use the term in analogical ways as well. If Christ redeemed us from our sins with his precious blood, then we should be willing to redeem others. Obviously, we don't redeem them from their sin. That's not the sort of redemption that we can do. But when they are in distress, we can redeem them from lesser troubles. And that's sort of, if we just, I've, I've noticed a tendency sometimes that, oh, it's a theological word, well then we can only use it theologically. So that means you can never redeem a coupon again. Sorry, but if somebody gives you a coupon, you can't redeem it, sorry, it's not, that's only Jesus can redeem, so don't, no, redemption is a perfectly good word, redeeming is a perfectly good word to use with respect to these other transactions, as it were. And that's where in Leviticus 25, God shows us how to do this. As we saw last time, the, the Sabbath is not just a weekly principle. It is a principle that structures time in more ways than one. Because in Leviticus 25, the Sabbath is applied not only to weeks, but also to years and even to weeks of years. Seven times seven years, 49 years, and then the Jubilee year is the 50th year. So the seventh day is the weekly day of rest. The seventh month is the annual month of rest. The seventh year is the sabbatical year of rest. And then the seventh sabbatical year is followed 
by the 50th year, the ultimate eighth, in a sense. The Jubilee is the ultimate Sabbath. It is pointing beyond the sevens because all these cycle of sevens never seem to end. There must be something beyond the sevens. And that's why it's important, as we saw last time, that the Jubilee begins in the seventh month. But what day of the seventh month? On the Day of Atonement. The Jubilee year starts when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. That's the day the Jubilee year starts. And we saw in Leviticus 16 that entering the Holy of Holies... What, what happens when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies? What does Hebrews say the Holy of Holies, as long as the first part of the temple is standing, that, that you can't get into the way into the heavenlies? The way into the heavenlies is only, it's basically that we only enter the, the high priest entering the most holy place. He is entering into the age to come. When so the, the 50th year, 7 times 7 plus 1, the ultimate 8th year, the year of new beginnings, the year of the new creation. And so what happens in the Jubilee year? All things are made new in the Israelite economy. Wow, that gets really practical. We're not just talking about some sort of, ah, oh, we spiritually have some sort of mystical experience. No, in the 50th year, you go back to your property. In the 50th year, you were a slave, you're now free. In the 50th year, your property was in somebody else's hands, it's now yours again. New creation, new beginnings have practical results in the life of the people of God. Now, we start in verse 35 tonight with a, a principle that we've seen before. You, when Moses says, you shall support your brother who becomes poor and cannot maintain himself. And this point that we've seen throughout Leviticus and indeed throughout the scriptures is that you should not profit off of your brother's misfortune. Uh, and the principle and the explanation of why is found in verse 38. That the Lord is a God who brought you out of Egypt. He redeemed you. Could any of you have paid your way out of Egypt? Well, no. And the Lord did not do this for his own benefit, but he did this for you to give you the land of Canaan. And he, give you, he gives you an inheritance that you did nothing to earn. And he did all of this to be your God. Now, think about what's just, what verse 38 is saying. What are the three parts of the promise to Abraham? The land and the seed and the blessing to the nations. And what's at the heart of the promise to Abraham? I will be your God and you will be my people. Well, that's what this is talking about. That the reason why you shall treat one another this way is because God says, I've done it for you. I brought you out of Egypt. I gave you a land you didn't deserve. And so, oh, it's really easy to say, oh, but look how they screwed things up. They don't deserve. Don't deserve. Really. They don't deserve. What do we deserve? What did, did any of us do anything to deserve the land of promise? Did any of us do anything to get houses we didn't build and, and, and vineyards we didn't plant? No. God, in his mercy, has done all this for us. How do we then treat others? Actually, nowadays we talk about uh, relief, rehabilitation, and development. But 
you can see those principles are rooted in the practices that God outlines here. Relief is where you stop the bleeding. When you're engaged in relief, it's not even loans that you're giving. You don't even expect them to pay you back. You, you feed them, you clothe them, you take care of them. This is, this is when they're in deep trouble. And we'll hear more about this in verse 39, where things go off the rails and he can't do a thing for himself. But rehabilitation is where they start taking ownership of the project. That's verse 36. Don't profit from his distress. If your brother cannot maintain himself with you, God says, take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. Yahweh is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Your fellow Israelite is your brother. You may not seek to, you may not, you may not, not just seek to, you may not oppress him by making money off of his distress. And throughout the centuries, the the reformers generally followed the same set of principles. For the poorest of the poor, Give without expecting any return. For those in need, lend without interest. For business loans, what we would call development, then moderate interest would be acceptable. And it's worth comparing this also to Deuteronomy 15, which adds a provision that all loans must be forgiven in the seventh year. So every seven years, loans are forgiven. Actually, this is, this is the principle behind modern bankruptcy laws. Uh, and actually, when you go back and study the history of bankruptcy, the history of bankruptcy is people studying the laws of Moses and saying, hmm, how do we put this into practice in the modern world, or the early modern world, because this was a few hundred years ago. Uh, but bankruptcy is, is based on the principle that the new creation is more important than strict justice. I mean, that's one, why, do, why do we allow somebody to declare bankruptcy? They owe that money. It's a just debt. How can we let them out of that just debt? Well, because God taught us that sometimes people get into a mess, sometimes out of their own doing, sometimes out of no fault of their own. Sometimes it doesn't matter. Sometimes you just need to let them have a fresh start. Now, is it true that bankruptcy laws can be used wickedly? Well, of course. Do you suppose anybody could manipulate the Sabbath laws and and Jubilee laws for their own benefit? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Although we know know from the prophets that they usually ignored these laws for their benefit. But still, any law can be manipulated for your own benefit if you try hard enough. But the principle remains intact. Sometimes you need a fresh start. You know, there's a a big debate today. What do we do with student loan debt? Well, what was the underlying problem is actually that we created an unforgivable debt. If you know anything about the way student loans work, student loans are not eligible for bankruptcy. That was the first problem. When you create an unforgivable debt, you are incentivizing bad lending practices. I can trap you and you're stuck. Now, I'm not going to try to solve that problem because scripture would allow a lot of different ways of solving it. But the principles in Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 15, suggest that there is a time when debts are wiped out and people are allowed to start over. God has not treated you just as you deserved. There's a reason why Jesus taught us to pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
His principles of justice and mercy are useful for all humanity. And these principles, it, it's, not that, it's not that we take Leviticus 25 and just sort of woodenly apply it. Ah, we're just going to just start doing this in America. It's rather, there are principles here. There are useful ways of thinking about how we treat those in need. Because that's where we go in verses 39 to 46 as we talk about slavery in the land. Because now your poor brother has reached desperation stage. He's ready to sell himself to you. And God says, do not make him serve as a slave. Now, part of it is, nowadays when we think about slavery, we tend to think of American slavery, 19th century racial slavery. In the ancient world, it's a bit different. Slavery was the way that ancient societies handled debt. If you can't afford to feed your family, what do you do? Well, you can sell your property. We saw that last time. But what if that isn't enough? What if you've sold your property, you've become a day laborer, and you still can't get by? All you have left is yourself and your children. What do you do when you've taken out a loan? They had loans back then. But when you take out a loan and you couldn't pay it back, well, then you have to work it off. And uh, as, as history has demonstrated over and over again, when fallen human beings gain power over each other, we have a tendency to want to keep it. But as we saw last time, God's purpose for the new humanity is that His people would live in His land. God, God's promise to Abraham of the land and the seed and the blessing to the nations was that his people would live in his land and thus become that blessing to the nations. There's a way in which God is not teaching a modern concept of private property. He's teaching stewardship. The idea of private property is, I can do whatever I want with my land. That's not what Leviticus 25 teaches. In Leviticus 25, you cannot sell your land permanently. You can only lease it out. And in the same way, you cannot permanently sell yourself. Land and seed go together. God had promised Abraham that his seed would inherit his land. Your inheritance is inalienable, both with respect to land and seed. Actually, uh, this is at the heart of what John Locke meant when he said that our inalienable rights are life, liberty, and property. Pursuits of happiness is another question entirely. But Locke said life, liberty, and property. You cannot alienate yourself. You cannot alienate your land. Now, Locke does something different with it than Moses is, but that's where it came from. Into a world that was driven by its quest for power, pleasure, and possession, God establishes an economic system that limits the acquisitive impulse. You may not permanently acquire your neighbor's land, and you may not permanently enslave your brother. And the reason is rooted in what God had said to Moses in Exodus 4. Israel is my son, my firstborn. God's son cannot be a slave. God's son is supposed to inherit the whole earth. And so God's children should never be slaves. And in the Jubilee year, in the year of redemption and release, land and seed are restored. An Israelite may not take a fellow Israelite as a slave because God had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. Israel was God's servant, God's slave. It's the same word. 
no one else could own them. So that they may serve as, as hired servants, but in the Jubilee year, they must be allowed to go free. Now, what do you do then with verses 44 to 46? Because here, all of a sudden, we're like, okay, but, but, the, but foreigners, sojourners, you can have them as slaves. Okay, so what about the blessing to the nations? How is this? What's going on here? Well, first, understand what it means that they may be your property, verse 45. The idea is expressed clearly in the following verse. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. Throughout the Old Testament, a possession or a property is something that is inheritable. Now, it's also important to recognize what we saw last time. The land belongs to God. You may not permanently alienate your inheritance. The modern notion of, I can do whatever I want to my property, didn't exist back then. We are stewards of our land, stewards of our houses, stewards also of those under our authority. If I am in a position of authority, I cannot do whatever I want with those under my authority. I have to treat them the way that God says. So the first point is that, that when it says that they can be slaves, that doesn't mean that, oh, you can do whatever you want with them. No, you have to treat them the way that God says. But then also it's important to see the concessive language here. You may do this. It was strictly forbidden to enslave Israelites. But given that Israel lived in a world where slavery was a prominent part of the economic system, God permits them to buy and sell foreigners. What's going on? Well, God's purpose with Israel is to show the world a new humanity. The, the economic system that God institutes in Israel is designed to show the benefits of being part of his people, part of the new humanity. If you are part of his people, any slavery that you will have to endure will only be temporary. Slavery is not a good thing. It should not be encouraged to continue. Indeed, the focus on redeeming slaves at the end of chapter 25 demonstrates that God's purpose is to bring slavery to an end because God's purpose is to bring a new humanity and in the new humanity with because part of it is if you are part of Israel then you can't be enslaved so as we keep seeing Israel has all of these non-Israelites who are now part of Israel so what happens if a slave gets circumcised they're now an Israelite what's going to happen so Moses doesn't address that question here, but it's, it's one that has to be considered as we think about what would this have looked like if Israel ever actually followed it, which is always one of those things that Israel wasn't very good at. Because the way to end slavery is by redeeming the slaves. Verses 47 to 49 talk about who may redeem, one of his brothers, his uncle, his cousin, or a close relative, or if he grows rich he may redeem himself. Now, you might wonder, first, why would you sell yourself to a stranger? If your crops fail, if, if you're injured, uh, you would probably prefer slavery to death. And if the person who was able to provide for you happened to be a stranger, well, you know, thanks be to God, there was someone who could save you from death. 
But, Moses' point is that the stranger is still obligated to abide by the law of God. If he lives within the territory of Israel, he must allow for his Israelite servant to be redeemed. And you might also wonder, how does a slave grow rich? It's not as strange as it sounds. Slaves generally had considerable autonomy in their work, and as long as the slave was producing at the agreed-upon rate, any additional produce belonged to the slave, and especially uh, given that God required that, this, that the, he be treated as a hired hand, therefore he should be, if he's, if he's working at the agreed-upon rate, he could conceivably grow rich. And actually this is not unusual throughout human history in any slave society. But the price would be calculated by the number of years until the Jubilee. You would take the wages of a hired worker and multiply that by the number of years until the Jubilee, and that would be the redemption price. And during his service, he must be treated as a hired worker, not as a slave. God recognizes that when a man has complete control over another man, the tendency is to rule ruthlessly over him. But God says that whoever owns an Israelite slave may not treat him as a slave, Even if it's a stranger and sojourner who owns the Israelite slave, the people of God are to make sure that their brothers are not mistreated. And given the regular exhortations to treat the sojourner well, the implication is clear. Uh, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So the elders of each town would be charged with making sure that the slaves were not mistreated. And then in the Jubilee year, he must be released, he and his children. Now, if you're... If you're familiar with the, 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 the various Mosaic laws on this point, uh, Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15 both have a provision that a Hebrew slave serves for six years and then goes out in the seventh year. But here in Leviticus 25, the Hebrew slave serves until the Jubilee year, the 50th year. Some have wondered what's going on here. Well, I would, I would suggest that Leviticus 25 assumes... Exodus 21 as the backdrop. Exodus 21 is part of, is part of the, the book of the covenant that was read at Sinai. And so this, is, this, was, this was the backdrop where God had said that the Hebrew servant would go free in the seventh year. But in Exodus 21, God had said, if a Hebrew servant did not want to go free, then he would remain as a slave forever. Well, Leviticus 25 is qualifying what forever means. In the 50th year, he and his children go free. Forever has come. The 50th year is entrance into the new creation. The 50th year has come. Forever has arrived. The new creation has come. God's people are released and sent back to the land. There is no permanent slavery among the people of God. But that doesn't mean that lawful debts should simply be ignored. Lawful debts should be paid. So if you want to redeem your kinsmen, you'll need to pay up. And there's a way in which you can see how the Jubilee is all about the new creation. By connecting Jubilee to the Day of Atonement, which Leviticus 25 does very clearly, the law's meaning is tied to the forgiveness and restoration that lies at the center of God's work with Israel and thereby what God is doing in all of history. Beyond the Sabbath given in the first revelation of the law, God now points Israel and the world to the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Now, as we've seen, 
Israel was profoundly bad at observing the Jubilee. So we don't actually know what would have happened if a society actually practiced this. The prophets only refer to the Jubilee as something that Israel failed to do. But that means also that the year of Jubilee was remembered, even if not practiced, throughout Israel's history. And in fact, when when our Lord Jesus came, he quotes from Isaiah 61, and many have noticed the parallels to the Jubilee principle, when Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Indeed, the whole point of the Jubilee is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one who brings release. He is the one who sets his people free. And so we are to be a people characterized by the Jubilee. It's why Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. How do we treat our debtors? How do we think about the debts that others owe to us? After all, our Lord Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, but took the form of a slave. He came in our nature. He took our debts. He paid the price for all of our transgressions. He redeemed us and bought us back. And so we ought to be a people characterized by the Jubilee. We ought to be redeemers. Now, we cannot possibly redeem people from their sins. That's not what we should mean when we say we are redeemers. But insofar as we are able to participate in freeing slaves, helping restore people to wholeness of body and soul, that's what Jesus is doing. And that's what he calls us to do in and with him. That it's entirely appropriate to speak of redeeming in that lesser sense, in that analogical sense. That, yes, we should we should look for how can we, because if I think sometimes, sometimes we wind up sort of so spiritualizing our vocabulary that we've got nothing left to see the connections between that what God is doing in everything in life is connected to what Jesus has done. It's why I said this morning that, that God is more interested in your business meetings than you are. Jesus is more interested in your relationships with your friends than you are. Because what, what God is doing in your everyday life, that's why, that's why you need to be focused on Him in your everyday life, not just, oh, all right, I need, now it's just my spiritual life. Because it's that whole self, whole life, devotion to God, practicing the presence of God, to use Brother Lawrence's term, that as we, as we live that way, then when we see our poor brother who is in need. Yes, we can redeem him. We don't save his soul. That's Jesus' job. But we can redeem him from a troublesome situation. That's, that's, that's an appropriate term to use. Just like you can redeem a coupon. That's, you're, not, you're not claiming to be Jesus when you redeem a coupon. You're also not claiming to be Jesus when you are redeeming a brother from a financial difficulty that he can't get out of. Those, that, sort of, that sort of redemption 
is precisely what you see the early church doing. When the, the apostles are, are the, the people are saying, oh, there, there are people who are in need? Okay, well, I'll, I'll sell my piece of property, and so that way we'll make, we'll make sure we take care of people. And we'll, because that's what they're doing. They're, they are redeeming. They don't use that, that term in that case, but, but that's the same principle. They're redeeming their brothers and sisters from financial trouble in order to care for one another in the midst of whatever situation they face. And insofar as we are able to participate in freeing the slaves, it's one thing that the, that the men's group is doing in, in talking about the, the death of porn, that, yeah, freeing slaves, because there's bondage in that, both on all sorts of sides. But this is what Jesus is doing and what he calls us to do in and with him, because he is he is the one who redeems the world, and we participate with him in buying back. I mean, there's, there were so many different directions I wanted to go with. You know, think about you know, Hosea with his wife. There's so many places where Hosea buys back his wife, even though she's not at all interested at first. But he does this because God calls him to. He does this because this is what it means to follow Jesus. So let's ask God to help us in this. Lord, help us because we see how far short we fall and we, we get distracted by the cares of the world, by the temptations of the devil, by the, the this pursuits of our own flesh. And we, we recognize that, that we don't love you the way we ought. We don't love one another the way we ought. So Lord, have mercy on us. And help us to, to, to see how you are the one who has redeemed us through the blood of your most precious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have delivered us, that you have brought us into your family, into your kingdom. And so we pray that you would, you would help us to, to see how we can participate in what you are doing in bringing, bringing your redemption to the ends of the earth. May we show forth your love and your kindness in the way that, in the way that we forgive others their debts and the way that we seek to help those in the midst of trouble and, and difficulty. Lord, have mercy upon us. And have mercy, Lord, upon, upon each of us in, in our several callings, that, that in our work and in our relationships, in our homes and, and neighborhoods and workplaces and schools, Lord, help us, help us to, to hold fast to you, to, to draw near to you, to trust you in the midst of, of every situation, every conversation, every, every relation that we're in. May we draw near to you and hold fast to you and find our joy and confidence and contentment in Jesus Christ, your Son. And Lord, for those who are afflicted and distressed, have mercy. For those who are, who are anxious and depressed, be, be their, their rock and their fortress. For those who are, who are in, in bodily pain and, and, and suffering, Lord, be their, be their comfort and be their support. May, may we find our, our rock and our refuge in Jesus. And we pray, Father, for those who are near to death, that you would comfort them, that you would hold, hold them fast in your arms, that whether in life or in death, we, we might be yours that we might know you, body and soul, ever into everlasting life. Lord, have mercy on us now this night and strengthen us as we go to our rest. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.